0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah, chapter 35, the verses 1 through 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God, he will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense, he will come and save you then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy for waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away.
1: Well, during these weeks of Advent, we've been in the book of Isaiah looking at these beautiful poetic um, texts. They're actually the lectionary um, texts for, for the year, the Old Testament readings. And um, every week when I go into the study, it's like a treasure hunt for me. And uh, and so I've had a really fun time um, hunting for treasure this past week. And I want to share what, really what I want to do today is um, kind of zoom out and help to clear up this very complex complex, and mysterious book known as the book of Isaiah. And I hope that in doing so, um, this will enhance and and bring a richness to what has already been preached in the last couple of weeks and what will be um, proclaimed in the next couple of weeks. So we're going to do a bit of a deep dive um, teaching message for a few moments. Um, I invite you to keep your thinking caps on. You can even open your Bibles if you want and the Bibles in the pews in front of you and Turn to Isaiah if you're interested in following along. We'll be jumping around a little bit, but the text will be on the screens. Isaiah, it's really important that you know that the prophet Isaiah is an historian, he is an historian of the time in which he was living. And in these days, um, in, the, in, in the nation of Israel, there were two kingdoms, two states. They were divided. And so there's the uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And in the southern kingdom of Judah is where Jerusalem is. And, uh, and each of these kingdoms have a succession of kings through them. You can read about them in 2 Kings and also in Chronicles. But they also have a succession of prophets as well. And the prophet Isaiah comes from the, sec- from the southern kingdom of Judah, out of Jerusalem, and he writes during a period of time in history, um, during a period of kings. Chapters 1 through 39 in the book of Isaiah take us from King Uzziah all the way to the end of Hezekiah's reign, which also includes Jotham and Ahaz. And so I Isaiah lived through the reign of these kings and he talks about, he, he speaks or he writes from his vantage point within history. Uh, you can look at the book of Kings and watch those kings and see what happened in the history of Judah in his time. But Isaiah is an historian and that's true of all the prophets as well. The Old Testament prophets tell the history of the time that they're living through. Jeremiah talks about the time uh, during the fall of Jerusalem, um, Micah, Hosea, Amos, all these prophets, not only do they play the role of speaking on behalf of God, but they're also historians of their time, and that makes them very important because we look at their vantage point in history. This will come clear as the message goes on. I just want to alert you to something that I totally love about the Hebrew prophets, and that is that there is nothing like them in all of antiquity. That is in the ancient world. There is nothing like the Hebrew prophets. You don't find them in Egypt. They're not in Egypt. They're not in the hieroglyphics, uh, any story of the prophetic tradition in Egypt. You don't see anything to match the Jewish prophets in Mesopotamia. They're not in Babylon. They're not in Assyria. They stand out as a remarkable group of people. They don't hold um, institutional power but they speak truth to power and they advise the kings um, and they also call the people um, back to God. And their their poetry is totally breathtaking as we've seen in Isaiah and and even heard this morning read so well from Anaheri. Uh, The content is important in understanding our understanding of God and ourselves. And, And so the Old Testament prophets are a remarkable phenomenon just in themselves, but they are also historians of their time and they give us the history of the life that they're living through. And Isaiah 1 through 39 is the first, is roughly the first half of Isaiah. And it tells of the time in history all the way up until about 60 years before the fall of Jerusalem, which took place in 586 B.C. under um, the Babylonian Empire, which was being led by Nebuchadnezzar II. Um, And then... Isaiah 40 through 66 is sometimes called 2nd Isaiah. Or there might be 1st Isaiah 1 through 39, 2nd Isaiah 40 through 55, and then 3rd Isaiah 56 through 66. Um, But we're going to go with 2 Isaiahs for today. Why is there 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah? Well, because Isaiah 2, or 2nd Isaiah, was written during captivity. During captivity isaiah one through thirty nine is written up into up to captivity um, leading up to the captivity and then in fact isaiah not thirty nine kind of ends with the death of Hezekiah. There are several kings after Hezekiah and so it 's about sixty years prior to the fall of Jerusalem um, and then Jeremiah writes during the fall of Jerusalem and then Isaiah two or second Isaiah writes from 40 chapters 40 through 66 which is about their time in captivity. So first part of Isaiah before captivity, second Isaiah during captivity and then even um, upon their return. And so, these remaining people during captivity, during the fall of Jerusalem, the the remnant was taken um, all the way to the Tigris or Euphrates River system from Jerusalem. And and this was ancient Babylon. And they were in captivity for 70 years in exile. And during that 70 years of captivity, there's another writer who emerges, and this writer writes anonymously. Well, why does he write anonymously? Well, because they're in, we don't really know, but it could be because they're in captivity and to write ho- words of hope to people in captivity is a great threat to the power. So, this writer writes in, uh, anonymously. What we know is that his hero, his mentor, was the prophet Isaiah from Jerusalem, from Judah um, prior to, you know, during the kings um, of Uzziah through Hezekiah. And maybe that's why he attaches his writing or the people attach his writing to this book that they already had, which was Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, And so 2nd Isaiah is this amazing word of hope in the middle of captivity and all of the themes that are presented in 1st Isaiah are deepened and continued in 2nd Isaiah. By the way, this happens in multiple places in the Old Testament where um, one person will add their writings to another person's book. For example, the book of Proverbs um, we know is attributed to King Solomon. And King Solomon most likely wrote most of the Proverbs. But the Proverbs were written over several hundred years and certainly King Solomon did not write all of the Proverbs. Same thing with the book of Psalms. Most of the Psalms are attributed to David. David And David wrote most of the Psalms, but not all of the Psalms did David write. But the Jews look back and they just call them the Psalms of David. But David didn't write all of the Psalms, but they're attributed in, in, to him in that way. Um, we're used to this also even in American literature. Um, you know, the America's favorite hymn is probably Amazing Grace. You know this song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's one of America's favorite hymns, but it wasn't written by an American. It was written by an Englishman, John Newton. And John Newton actually only wrote four verses. The fifth verse, which we love to sing when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, wasn't written by John Newton. It was written in Appalachia by an American composer who added it to Newton's great hymn, Amazing Grace. So if you look at an historic hymn book, there's only four verses because John Newton only wrote four verses. We added the fifth. We attached it to his great hymn, and we believe that he'd be happy with such an addition. Or we don't care, but nevertheless, we did it. Um, and so that's what happens. And during Advent, we look at the first half of Isaiah. Um, and Isaiah, the second Isaiah, the writer will also write about the history of his time, but it's a different period now. They're in captivity. And he will write about the coming of the great Persian king Cyrus, who who is going to rescue the people out of captivity. But the writer of first Isaiah identifies himself throughout as the son of Amos, Um, And he's a prophet and he writes. So what does he write? What does he write? What are the great themes in this great, mysterious, complex book of Isaiah? First of all, he gives us a message of judgment. And we don't really like that. I mean uh, it 's not really happy language, you know um, it 's not the most friendly part of the writing, but we get a lot of it and um, and we have it here, and we have it in all the prophets in jeremiah in in Micah and Amos for sure, even in Hosea, which is a love story, it also has aspects of judgment in it. Habakkuk, all the prophets have a message of judgment. And then we get to the New Testament. When the New Testament period comes, that tradition is continued with the arrival of John the Baptist, who also comes bringing this message of judgment for the people. Do you remember the first thing that John the Baptist said when the people were coming down to the river to be baptized by him? He said, why are You coming to seek the wrath that is coming? You brood of vipers! Can you imagine saying that to a group of people? You generation of snakes! It's it's not really a strategy on how to win friends and influence people, you know. So so John the Baptist was very prickly, and he brought this harsh message of judgment, and and people came. Um, By the way, he borrowed that phrase, brood of vipers, from the Essenes. The Essenes in the Qumran community and in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered in the 1950s, um, that's how they described the people. They were the ones who wanted to separate themselves from all the people and live out in the desert in, you know, solace and, and solitude. Why? Because they believed that all those people were a generation of vipers. Okay. So John the Baptist, and you see that in Isaiah 2. Take a look at these opening words from Isaiah chapter 1. Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, children who deal corruptly. He's not even letting the kids off the hook. I mean, uh, who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged. A little heavy, it's a little heavy. And, and that's the way Isaiah starts, and he doesn't stop there. He goes all the way through, and he's playing the role of expressing, of expressing God's anger towards wickedness, injustice, idolatry, um, all of those things, um, unrighteousness, all the things that are against the will of God. But thankfully, that's not, this is not the only theme in the book of Isaiah. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be reading it. You know, a little bit of that goes a long way. Um, but it's there, and it's there throughout the prophets. Secondly, we hear another theme. So we hear this, this message of judgment, and within that is a call for the people of God to turn back, to repent. But then we also hear a call to ethics and a life of morality. This is a, a call to ethical action. There is in the prophetic tradition, in all of the prophets, is this incredible thread of morality, this moral thread, this call uh, to do what is right. And that's a positive message. Listen, look at these words that we love to read from Isaiah chapter 1, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Amazing words. Many of the prophets are like that too. We see it in Isaiah. The prophet calls us to ethical action, um, a kind of of love and rightness that cares about people around us and notice the strong emphasis towards those who are forgotten in society. Uh, The people of God are always called to make sure that people are not forgotten. So there's this message of judgment. There's this call to ethical action, to moral living. And then thirdly is a message of hope this message of hope. And there are two parts to the message of hope that I think help us really understand what it means to be a Christian. The first part is pretty clear and it's very easy to follow. And the message is, if you, then God. In the prophets, in the Old Testament prophets, if you repent, then God will forgive you. If you turn from your ways of evil, think about uh, Nineveh. If you turn to back towards God and leave your injustice and oppression and all that stuff behind, then God will forgive you and restore you. If you then God, he'll forgive your sins. And we see that in chapter 1. Come, let us argue it out or let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. So there's this call to repentance when you turn away from evil. If you turn and face God and ask God's help, come, let us argue it out forgiveness will happen. And that's the first part of the message of hope towards those who turn toward God. And so in a way, in a way, our repentance, I know that's kind of a loaded term, but let's just say our turning towards God and turning our hearts towards God um, plays a really important role in our experience of God's help and God's hope in our lives. But In chapter six, the last line of chapter six, something new is added to the history of Israel's life. Chapter six begins with Isaiah's great vision of God in the temple. In the year King Uzziah died, I see the Lord seated high and lifted up. The train of his robe is filled with glory, right? Um, And there's holiness and glory of God. This is chapter 6. And Isaiah says, woe is me in the face of this great holy God. I'm a man of unclean lips. We see our smallness kind of like when you go up into the mountains. Um, And then comes the call of Isaiah when God says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And, of course, Isaiah doesn't want to have anything to do with it. But God then sends him anyway to bring this harsh message of judgment and complete desolation because God's going to judge wickedness. Remember all that judgment stuff we talked about a minute ago. Until the last line. The last line in chapter 6 is a mystery clue. Isaiah complains when the Lord tells him to convey this message of judgment the land's going to dry up, everything is going to be desecrated, cities are going to be laid to waste, the people will be scattered, Jerusalem will be destroyed, and everything will be burned, and what is left, that will be burned again, and only stumps will remain. And then the last line says this, the holy seed is in its stump, and the reader's like, wait, What? Wait, can we just stop there? It just seems like this throw-in line. The holy seed is in its stump. What does that mean? It means that not everything is lost. It seems that everything is lost, but not everything is lost. Something can happen if God acts, if God chooses, in God's sovereignty to act. And that becomes a new theme in the life of Israel. We see it develop in Isaiah 1, and it comes immediately to the foreground in Isaiah 7. Take a look at this. Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. This is totally new, the holy seed is in the stump and now a woman will conceive and give birth to a son and this something new is personal. And notice this, it has absolutely nothing to do with our repentance, nothing at all. It's totally separate from us. It's separate from our turning to God. So the first message of hope is if you then God. If you turn to God, God will forgive you. The second message of God, uh, of hope, is, is, is that God is going to act whether you like it or not. It's going to be totally unique. I'm not sure Isaiah even understood what he was saying. But it doesn't matter because he said it. He said it. And notice, because the, he did not say because the people said, oh Lord, help us. Okay, I'll send a son, and we will call him Emmanuel. Nope, right out of this darkness of danger, behold, a young woman will conceive and bear a son. And then in chapter 9, which we'll reflect on at Christmas, on Christmas Eve, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, a light has shined. Notice the people were not yearning for light. They were not the people who are yearning for light. They were the people who were walking in darkness. They've seen a great light. Well, what is that great light? Well, here's how Isaiah puts it. A child has been born for us, a son given to us. All authority rests on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Luke puts it like this. In, on this day in the city of David to you is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. The holy seed is in the stump. Notice that this is quite apart from us. It has little to do with us. It's separate from our repentance or our obedience to the law. God is going to act on his own, his son, and it's personal. And then notice how this is fulfilled in the New Testament when Jesus goes to the cross. It's the darkest hour of all of human history. The darkest hour. The people walked in darkness. They created darkness. They were reveling in darkness as they uh, mocked and tortured and crucified our Lord. And while our Lord is being crucified, the first word from from the cross is, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. This is Jesus in Isaiah's prophetic tradition. It's not these soldiers are suddenly realized that I'm the son of God, they're super remorseful about what they're doing to me right now, so could you please forgive them, they've realized they've messed up. No, no, they don't have a clue. They're living in darkness and surprise. Forgive them, Father. Grace comes by surprise. The Apostle Paul saw this clearly in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, and Romans is, of course, Paul's greatest book, Um, and Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness or the character, the love of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Well, the word revealed is the word apokalupsos, and it means to break through by surprise. By surprise, there's a holy seed in that stump in the desolated desert. By surprise, the young woman will conceive and bear a son. By surprise, the people who walked in darkness will see a great light. The love of God has broken through by surprise, faith for faith, God's faithfulness for our faith. So the promise of hope comes by surprise, and it's spoken of in personal terms. God acts because God chooses to act. We don't summon the gods. God summons us, and we respond. Not only that, but this promise also becomes universal in the book of Isaiah. I was reminded last week that in in Jewish history, in the history of Israel, they had three yearnings as they were waiting for their Savior. Three yearnings. And the first yearning is the yearning for a father like Abraham. This is the identity yearning. They've been displaced. They've been taken around. Who am I? We need a father like Abraham. The second yearning was for a deliverer like Moses. This is the deliverance yearning, the yearning for salvation. And the third yearning for the Jewish people is the Davidic yearning, the yearning for a king like David, the yearning for joy and happiness. But unfortunately, by the time of the first century, by the time John the Baptist and Jesus came on the scene, the, the people of Israel had um, essentially nationalized all three of those yearnings. They'd become totally tribal. And so by the time you get to the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran community, by the time you get to the first century, um, these are the yearnings are spoken of in tribal terms. Identity for me. We don't like foreigners, we don't like outsiders, we don't like strangers. Deliverance for us from the Romans or from whoever it is that might be a threat or oppressing us. Kingship for us, the Davidic hope is for us and for our benefit to be, to rule over the nations. And you can see how Jesus breaks through all of that when he says to his disciples, you in the end of the gospel of Matthew, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but also in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why? Because my good news, my gospel is universal. It's for all. It's for all. Paul put it Paul puts it that way too. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. The Jew first, also the Greek. Where does Paul get that? From, I, I, from Jesus, from Isaiah. So now when we get to chapter 35, and I'm going to land it here, um, just toward the end of book one, these very um, beautiful words Isaiah writes. The wilderness and dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear, here is your God. This God will come with judgment. And then verse five, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Despair will turn to joy. Wow, this is the hope, it's the hope of Isaiah. It's more profound than your choice, than your desire, than your repentance. It's not our repentance that triggers God's grace, it's God's grace that acts first and we respond in saying yes. This is what's fulfilled in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. Now, did Isaiah understand all of this, everything that he was saying and prophesying about this amazing person who's going to come 600 years later and fulfill everything that he's going to say? Did he have a clue what he was saying? We don't know. Does it matter? No. Holy Spirit knew. He said it. He was given a word, and he gets to share this hope that somehow out of dry ground, God will act. What does that mean for you? There is no lost cause. There is no lost cause. Is your soul dried up? It's not over. If it's not good, it's not done. God is able to act and he does. And that's the message of hope and joy from the prophet Isaiah for us today. God, we thank you for Isaiah's witness for his beautiful words, his powerful words, and we don't really like the words of judgment, but we also recognize that we find ourselves complicit and, and we struggle, and so we do turn back to you and how grateful we are for your love, for your hope, for your forgiveness. God, call us to ethical lives where we advocate for those in our society who don't have such a voice. And help us to look with hope to a God who acts on his own. What love you give to us. In Jesus' name, amen.